what is Christmas all about? It may come as no surprise to you that opinions on this subject vary. Uh, Some say it's about the joy of giving. Others say it's about the, the presence under the tree. But what does the Bible say? What is the message of Christmas according to the Bible? According to the Bible, Christmas is about the coming of Jesus Christ. Which coming? His first coming or his second coming? Hark the herald angels sing is about the first coming of Jesus, but joy to the world is about the second coming of Jesus. And those two songs are placed side by side in our hymnals, number 87 and number 88. What if Christmas is not simply about one or the other, but about both? What does Jesus' first coming mean for you? Are you ready and anticipating his return, his second coming? This morning, we we open God's word to study the prophet Isaiah's vision of Christmas. You may be surprised to discover that a prophet in the 8th century BC has something to say about Christmas. But he actually, uh, actually he has some of the most well-known things the Bible says about Christmas. Isaiah says them. In Isaiah chapters 7 through 12, we find material that saturates our Christmas carols and Handel's famous Messiah. In these chapters, Isaiah tells us things like, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Later, Isaiah will say, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And then four verses after that, Isaiah says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And and we could keep going. Isaiah doesn't just tell us the who of Christmas, that Christ is coming. He also tells us what what it means for us. That because Christ has come and is coming again, God can be trusted. So, trust Him. Through Isaiah's message and the history of the ancient people of Israel, we learn that God can be trusted because He will keep His word, send His Messiah, and right all wrongs. Our God can be trusted because He is in control of all things and because He holds the future. This is the message of Isaiah chapters 7 through 12. And and we are going to look at it together this morning. You see, we're not just supposed to experience Christmas passively. We're supposed to engage and respond to Christmas with a living faith in the living Christ who will come again. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. That's where we're going to begin. That's found on page 571 of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there, let me just give a little bit of of context to our study. Uh, First, let me just give a brief note. I'm going to be mentioning chapters and verses a lot. The chapters in the text are the larger numbers and the verses are the smaller numbers. We're not going to read every verse. So from time to time, I'll refer to a chapter and a verse. And I encourage you to, to find that chapter by finding the larger number and then find the verse by finding the smaller number. And we're going to be... Though not reading all of Isaiah, chapters 7 to 12, we're going to be working our way through all of it. Isaiah, he was an 8th century prophet of God who was sent to preach to the southern kingdom of Judah. 
He was sent to call Judah, this nation, to trust in God, to believe that God is their only hope of salvation. This message is reiterated in the chapters that we're studying together this morning. Chapters 7 to 12 uh, are known by some scholars as the book of Emmanuel. Uh, I've included an outline of the sermon and, and a map uh, in, in, your, in your bulletin that I hope will help you to visualize some of the, the nations that Isaiah mentions and addresses in these chapters. Isaiah, you see, he was speaking into a situation that lacked stability. It's not unlike our world today. Nations were forming alliances and cooperating to threaten other nations. Some nations were working through other nations. And Isaiah is addressing this situation. Smaller nations like Judah, the one that Isaiah is speaking to, smaller nations were in peril. So they were looking for the protection of a larger nation, like Assyria. And at one level, fear is not a surprising reaction. But it's one thing to be afraid and to look for God for help. And it's another to be afraid and to look to everyone else but God for help. And what we're going to discover is that Judah, the southern kingdom that Isaiah is preaching to, Judah was looking for help in all of the wrong places. And Isaiah lays out reason after reason why God can be trusted. But he begins first by saying this, God can be trusted. And since that's where Isaiah begins, that's where we begin. Let's turn now and consider our first point, God can be trusted. Read Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 7 now. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah to terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. In the first seven verses of our text, we are vividly shown the heart of the king and the heart of his people. Their hearts, you see there, their, their hearts shook with fear as trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz and the people of Judah have been frightened. They've been frightened by the powerful coalition formed by their neighbors, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. Their plan, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, was to conquer Judah, to depose Ahaz and to set up their own king. That was their plan. But the Lord had another one. While Ahaz went out to check on Judah's water supply, these things are important to secure uh, when you're getting ready for a siege, when he went out to check on Judah's water supply, the Lord sent Isaiah and his son to deliver a simple message. You see it right there at the end of verse 7. It shall not come to pass. See, where there is smoke, there's not always fire. Syria, also known as Damascus, 
and the northern kingdom of Israel, also known as Ephraim, with Samaria as its capital, they're nothing more but smoldering stumps in the sight of the Lord. The fire has died out. That's the image there. They can do no real harm. So how should Ahaz respond to this word of promise from the Lord? According to verse 4, he should not fear. Positively speaking, he should be firm in faith. We see that in verse 9. God can be trusted. You know, sometimes in our own lives, we react to smoke when there is no fire. We see what looks like trouble off in the distance, and our fear grows. Is there anything lingering out in the distance that causes you to fear, be afraid, or cause fear to well up within you? We're a fearful people often, aren't we? We should admit that about ourselves, and we should pray and ask the Lord to help us be firm in the faith. Even if it is a real fire, God can be trusted. In an effort to prove to Ahaz that he can be trusted, the Lord invites Ahaz to ask him for a sign. Take a look there at verse 10 of chapter 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. What do you do? What do you do when the Lord tells you to do something? You do it. You obey. The Lord told Ahaz to ask him for a sign. But he didn't do it, did he? Instead, he, he pretends that he's too holy to do such a thing. Now, it, it's true that the scriptures teach us that we're not to put the Lord our God to the test. But when God says, ask me for a sign, you ask him for a sign. Of course, what we're seeing here is a unique and unrepeatable event in redemptive history. God is speaking to Ahaz through a prophet, for the purpose of unfolding his plan of salvation. The message of Christmas, really. Not just for Judah, but for the world. Signs from the Lord in the scripture are always and everywhere associated with revealing his great plan of salvation. That's why when we ask God for signs in our lives, we're actually doing something unbiblical. We're asking God for something far less than what he uses signs for in the scriptures. Miraculous signs were part of Jesus' ministry to reveal that he was the Savior. And Jesus rebuked those in his day who asked for a sign. Ahaz's refusal to ask God for a sign is actually a sign of unbelief and disobedience. Ahaz had already placed his faith, his trust, in someone else's strength. When Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel threatened him, he did not look to God for help. He looked to Assyria instead. We know this from 2 Kings chapter 16. Ahaz did not trust in God. He and the people of Judah were to be servants of the living Lord and not another nation. Ahaz was not firm in faith, but God, in his mercy, informed Ahaz that he was going to give him a sign anyway. This sign will be a child, and this child will prove that God is with the people of Israel. This child will prove that God can be trusted. 
This child shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This sign child, he had to be a historical figure, a person born in the time period connected with these events that we're looking at in Isaiah. After all, if God is a God of his word, and he is, then this will have to be a child in whose lifetime the alliance between the two kings of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel they have to come to an end. You see that in verse 16. And in fact, what we know from history, the alliance between these two kings and their kingdoms came to an end. God can be trusted. Now what is remarkable is that these verses pertain to events in Ahaz's day and they look forward to a future day, to Christmas day. We know that because when Matthew wrote about Jesus uh, in the birth in, about Jesus birth in his gospel, he said that Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. We see that in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. You see Jesus is the final sign child who proves that God is with us. There are two fulfillments of this prophecy, one which sets the pattern and one which fulfills the deepest realities of the pattern. Ahaz and the people of Judah did not need to fear because God was with them. In 12 short years, when the promised child is old enough to refuse the evil and choose the good, this threat of Syria and Israel would be completely gone. The Lord will raise up Assyria, the nation that Ahaz trusted in, to wipe out Syria and Israel. And at first glance, this might seem to be a welcome relief, a welcome promise. But verse 17 opens up a problem. Problem. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The child promised who would come. The child would act as a sign of God's presence in preserving Judah from Syria and Israel. But because of their unbelief, the child would also act as a sign of God's presence in judgment and punishment upon Judah. He would use the very nation that they trusted in, Assyria, to oppress them. God and God alone is whom we should fear. He can be trusted. Having established this fundamental truth, Isaiah then turns to give several reasons that God can be trusted. God can be trusted, first, because he keeps his word. This is what we learn in our second point. God can be trusted because he keeps his word. Take a look at the beginning of chapter 8, the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maharshalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jechabariah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Harshalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Here in the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 8, we learn that God keeps his word. The promised child of Isaiah 7.14 is born. That's Maharshal Hospaz. I do not think that you should be greatly troubled by the fact that his name is not called Emmanuel, but instead Maharshal Hospaz. Jesus, after all, he wasn't called Emmanuel at his birth. He was called Jesus. And still, 
What his birth signified was that God was with us. And the same is true from Maharshal Ahashbas. His birth signified that God was with the people of Judah, both in judgment and in mercy. Ahaz and the people of Judah no longer need to fear Syria and Israel, but Assyria will march down toward them, toward Judah. This could be cause for fear, cause for alarm, but remember where this section of Isaiah began. Do not fear the nations. Fear the God who made the nations. He can be trusted. Consider the comfort you see there in verse uh, 13 of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And then consider the double-edged sword of verse 14. And He will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see, the Lord is a sanctuary. He's a refuge for the faithful. But He is a stumbling block and a snare for the faithless. God is not indifferent toward how His people respond to Him. How are you responding to God? How are you responding to Jesus this Christmas? Israel and Judah have failed to put their faith in God. The Assyrian crisis proves that much, and the results were disastrous. The unbelievers living in Judah looked to mediums and sorcerers when they should have been listening to God's word. You see that in verse 19. Darkness, spiritual darkness, has settled on the land. Verse 20 of chapter 8. The land will be marked by distress and destitution, disobedience and disrespect toward their king and their God. Verse 21. Be sure to note all of the bitter fruit of faithlessness. Friends, brothers and sisters, whose word can you trust? We can trust God's word. He keeps his word. He always has and he always will. Perhaps some of the most excruciating pain that is experienced in this world is when vows are made and broken. As Christians, we are called to reflect the character of of our God. Our spouses, friends, family members, neighbors, and co-workers should be able to trust us implicitly when we give them our word. Let's also call our attention to the disastrous results from failing to trust God and take Him at His word. We see that the darkness has descended at the end of chapter 8. When we are tempted to put our ultimate trust in anything or anyone other than the Lord, remember this. Faithlessness brings darkness, blindness, and confusion. Israel and Judah were faithless. What will God do in the face of a faithless people? Where they were faithless, God remained faithful. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, we learn that God can be trusted because He will send His Messiah. This is the next point we turn to consider. God can be trusted because He will send His Messiah. Read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 now. But there, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice, notice that gracious word that begins chapter 9. But, in the face of unbelief, the unbelievable happens. God purposes to be gracious to his people. The gloom will be gone. The anguish will be annihilated, verse 1. God's judgment through the mighty Assyrian army would march into the land through Zebulun and Naphtali and there, right there, God's grace would be revealed from heaven. He would make the way of grief glorious. Those who had been shrouded in darkness, He would send a great light. Indeed, He would send the light of the world to them. They would experience joy like they have never experienced before. Verse 3. When Jesus began His ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that He fulfilled verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. We read about it earlier in the service. They were given in Isaiah's day, but they were fulfilled in Jesus' day. And these promises we see here in Isaiah's language, they are certain. <coughs> they are so certain that they're spoken of in the past tense, as though they've already happened. You see there, the people in darkness have seen a great light. On them light has shined. He has multiplied the joy of the nation. These promises, because they come from the God who keeps his word, they're certain to come to pass. The oppression of God's people would be finally broken, verse 4. It would be broken in much the same way that it was broken in the day of Midian, through an enemy defeating itself. That's what happened when Gideon and his army got together. They encircled the camp of Midian, and they broke a few pots and blew a few trumpets and shouted. And the army of Midian turned on itself and defeated themselves, killing themselves. What we're being told here is that God would bring about a victory through the self-defeating schemes of the oppressor. With that in view, we can't help but think of the cross of Jesus Christ. Think of Pilate, the Jewish religious leaders, and Satan, all conspiring at the cross of Christ. They thought that they had defeated the purposes of God in putting Jesus to death. But it was an act of self-defeat for them, and victory for us, and for our salvation. Through Jesus' death, we have been set free from the yoke and burden of sin. Through Jesus' death, the rod of our oppressor, the devil, has been broken. That's part of the reason 
that when Jesus' ministry begins, he begins by casting out demons. The battle clothes you see there in verse 5. They may be burned and used as fuel for a fire that brings warmth for warriors who are no longer at war. Our warfare with God has been brought to an end. The battle has been won by the Lord. How? Through a baby boy. Remember when we were thinking about the promise of Emmanuel in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, just a few moments ago. And, and when we came to Isaiah 8, 3, we learned that Maharshal Hashbaz is but one fulfillment of that sign. The promise of Emmanuel, as I'm sure you can feel it in your bones, is just too rich to be fulfilled by Maharshal Hashbaz. The deepest realities of that sign are aching to be fulfilled. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, the picture of the ultimate fulfillment of that sign is, is filled out just a little bit more. The final Emmanuel child will not merely be called Emmanuel. He will also be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This coming child cannot be a mere man. He must be the God-man. This is Emmanuel. This is Jesus. He is why we celebrate Christmas. He was the child who was born at Bethlehem and at the same time the eternal, uncreated Son of God who existed from all eternity. He has planned wondrous deeds in the councils of eternity. And He is the mighty God who brings them to pass in history. This should be as no surprise for we were promised that God would be with us and if God is with us, then we should expect this Son to fully reveal the everlasting Father to us. That's precisely what Jesus came to do. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We're also told that he would be called the Prince of Peace. And didn't Jesus make peace by the blood of his cross? That's what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 9, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He is the Prince of Peace who establishes peace and rules in peace. He's why we sing at this time of year, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Just as Jesus fulfilled God's promises of the sign of Emmanuel, so Jesus also fulfilled God's promises to David, that he would rule on his throne for all eternity. All of the promises of Isaiah, of God, are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The Lord God is zealous. He is committed to see these promises come to pass. And indeed he did. Verse 7, right? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And he did do this. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to Jesus today in repentance and faith. Come out of the dungeon of darkness that sin has plunged all of us in and receive by faith the light of the world the Lord Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin and our rebellion against God means that we're at war with God, warring against Him. And we all need peace with God. And what Isaiah 9 and the rest of the Bible tells us is that Jesus has brought our warfare with God to an end. He has lived the perfect life of humble obedience to God that we have not lived. He has given up his life on the cross, taking the punishment that was due to our rebellion and our sin. It was due to all of those who would have returned from their sin and placed their faith in Jesus. And three days after his death, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, proving to us that he accepted his sacrifice 
on our behalf so that we might have peace and fellowship with God for all eternity. Jesus is the Messiah that God promised here in Isaiah chapter 9. So believe in Him. Believe that Jesus lived for you the righteous life that you have not lived. Believe that Jesus, when He died on the cross, He was paid the wages for your sin. Believe that God raised Jesus from the dead so that you might have peace with God and so be forever welcomed into His presence. And if you want to know more about this good news, please come and find me at the door after the service. Speak with a friend or a family member that you came here with this morning. This is wonderful good news. It's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. God can be trusted because he promised to send his Messiah. God can also be trusted because he will right all wrongs. Don't you want that in your life and in our world? Some people sing about it as their, their grown-up Christmas list, right? They want peace on earth. Well, God is going to bring about that peace through his Messiah. God can be trusted because he will right all wrongs. This is the fourth point. Let's not forget that part of the purpose of this sign, even from the beginning of chapter 7, is to strengthen our faith and to call us to trust in God and in God alone. In Isaiah's day, these things still needed to come to pass. The future for Isaiah's audience was still in the future. And the persistent unbelief of the present needed to be addressed. Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, needed to be dealt with. Assyria needed to swallow up those kingdoms. And Judah needed to be disciplined and chastised for her lack of faith. Verse 8 of chapter 9 immediately launches us back into these harsh realities. And Isaiah has four things to say with respect to the present circumstance. These four declarations or accusations stretch from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 8 through chapter 10 verse 4. First, in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 8 through verse 12, we learn that the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, they lack humility. Their pride and their arrogance is pointed out there in verse 9. And the bottom line is this, you have a choice. You can be humble or you can be humbled. Because of Israel's pride, because of their lack of humility, they would be humbled. Secondly, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 13 through 17, we learn that the people of the northern kingdom lack honorable leaders. They lack honorable leaders. In particular, verse 16 tells us that the leaders of the northern kingdom have been leading the people astray. A nation devoid of honorable leaders is surely a nation in great peril. Next, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 18 to 21, we learn that the people of the northern kingdom of Israel lack love. Take a look at verse 19. Verse 19 tells us that no one spares another. And then in verse 21, it tells us that Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. You see, instead of being one nation, living together, glorifying God, Israel is divided. And each part derides and devours the other. They lack love. Finally, in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, we learn that the people of the northern kingdom lack justice and mercy. Iniquitous decrees fill the laws of the land as the rights of the needy are turned aside. The most vulnerable in society, orphans, widows, and the poor, are preyed upon in greed. For this, God promises that he will punish the northern kingdom. 
Israel will have to leave her wealth behind when Assyria sweeps down to devour them. And that's precisely what happened in 722 BC. God can be trusted in the face of injustice. God is displeased with Israel's deeds and he can be trusted to right these wrongs. Doesn't it feel like today so many escape earthly justice? Even when justice is served, it still feels partial. That's because ultimate and final justice belongs to the Lord. And it will be carried out when Jesus comes again. You know, we are sometimes tempted to take justice into our own hands when we are wronged. But God's word urges us not to do that. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we can trust God because He will right all wrongs. He is a God who keeps His word. And He has said, I will repay. He will. We want to work for justice in our homes. We want to work for justice in our communities and in our government. We can and should do this. And though we may be disappointed when we see injustice go unpunished, let us never take matters into our own hands. Young people, children, never take matters into your own hands. Let the Lord repay those who have wronged you. Let's remember and trust that in the end, our God will right all wrongs. Though we may not be satisfied with the justice of today, we can be sure that on the last day, we will be satisfied by the God who will repay all injustice with His perfect justice. God can be trusted because He will right all wrongs. And God can be trusted because He's in control. This is what our next section, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 34, is all about. God can be trusted because he's in control. You know, when you think about what's going on here in Isaiah's day, everything must have felt like it was spinning out of control for Judah. Syria and Israel were pressing down upon them. Then their alliance with Assyria not only failed, but their ally turned on them. Assyria became an overzealous oppressor. But God could be trusted. Because he was in control. You see, God is sovereign over history and over the nations. Just as the Lord raised up Pharaoh for a purpose, Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, so the Lord raised up Assyria for a purpose. And once that purpose was accomplished, the coalition between Israel and Syria crushed and Judah chastised, the Lord makes it clear that he will punish Assyria. Read Isaiah chapter 10. Take a look at verses 12 and 13. When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And now here comes that speech from the the arrogant speech of the king. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I have removed the boundaries of peoples and the plunder And plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. Actually, dear king, you were an instrument in the hand of God. The only thing that you could do was what the sovereign Lord permitted you to do. And a little later in the book, in this book of Isaiah, the Assyrian army will march right up to the gate of Jerusalem with the intention of sieging the city. 
And they'll fall short of their goal of conquest because the sovereign Lord is in control. Even though God would send Assyria to punish Judah for their failure to trust in Him, He will not utterly wipe them out. Judah will come to the edge of extinction, but because God is in control, He will pull Assyria back, and later Babylon, from completely wiping out His people. Because God is in control, He will preserve a remnant, and even this will lead to faith. Take a look at verse 20 of Isaiah chapter 10. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. You see, God can be trusted even through fiery trials because he's in control. He will stop Assyria dead in its tracks. The lofty will be brought low, as verse 33 says. The New Testament speaks of God's sovereign control over all things for the benefit of our faith too. Christian, I wonder, have you ever come through a fiery trial and found that God is worthy of your faith? Then trust Him when the next one comes. Trust Him with the one you face, perhaps even now. God works in our lives through trials. In one respect, He brings them so that in Jesus Christ, we may be perfect And complete, lacking in nothing. Whatever you are enduring or may endure in the days ahead, know that God is in control. And that He is using these trials in our lives to strengthen our trust in Him. The God who keeps His word, sends the Messiah and Savior, rights all wrongs, and is in control of history, also holds the future. So let's briefly consider our final point this morning. Our God can be trusted because He holds the future. Read Isaiah chapter 11. Let's read verses uh, 1 to, to 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ear hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf And the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Friends, this is a glorious picture of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a glorious reality 
that will be brought about by the final Emmanuel child, Isaiah 7.14, by the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6, or by the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. If we are told of the promised king in Isaiah 7, and we're told what he is like in Isaiah chapter 9, here we are told what his final kingdom is like. It is a kingdom marked by perfect justice because he is the chief justice. Unlike the faithless King Ahaz and other failed kings who have reigned on the throne of David, this final and triumphant king will be filled with the Spirit of the Lord. He will be filled with wisdom and understanding, counsel and might. And unlike any other, he will be filled with the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Here, here is Christmas consummated. Is it any surprise that the kingdom of the Prince of Peace is a kingdom marked by peace. We see in, in these, these verses that natural enemies, right? The, the wolf and the lamb, they, they dwell together. No longer is the creation groaning and expressing unrest against its inhabitants. A baby can play over the hole of a cobra. Who would let their child do that today? And a young child can put his hand into the adder's den. All of this is, is vivid imagery meant to describe the character of the coming kingdom of God, a kingdom marked by peace. Not only will creation be at peace, at rest, but the nations of the world will be at rest too. Even the ancient divisions between the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah will be reconciled to peace. The nations will no longer war against each other because they will all now be united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ shall stand as a signal and a banner for the nations. They will come to him and adore him. He will, take a look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. See, only God can bring about this future because only God holds the future. And only God has a vision of the future that is so glorious. The utopian visions of the political right and left don't even come close to the beauty and glory of the real future in the new heavens and the new earth. Their dreams of the future are far too small because their estimation of the problem is far too small. We can trust God because He has shown us that He has inaugurated, He has begun this future in Jesus Christ. And one day He will bring about its full consummation. Friends, brothers and sisters, in the coming of the shoot of the stump of Jesse, in the coming of Jesus Christ, the nations have already begun to gather to him. Who was the first to come and worship him? Gentiles. The banished of Israel and the dispersed of Judah are even now being gathered to him from the four corners of the earth. We know from Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. The Apostle Paul in Galatians means to communicate what Isaiah is communicating. All those who have faith in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, are part of the people that Jesus is gathering to himself. What do we read about uh, in Matthew's gospel earlier, right? He sent out his disciples... And they went out to the Decapolis, to a Gentile region, and people began to follow Jesus. 
Those who have faith in Jesus Christ are, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, they're the Israel of God. This future has begun in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, and those who turned from their sins and professed faith in Jesus Christ through baptism were publicly declaring that they were citizens of this heavenly kingdom to come. God can be trusted because He holds the future. On the day that the Father sends His Son to return in glory, all things will be made new. And this vision of the future, Isaiah's vision of Christmas consummated, will be realized. When Jesus comes back to the world, He will bring joy to the world. No more. No more let sins or sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground because He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This vision, it, it outshines all of the darkness that we face in the present. We can trust God. We can trust God in all things. We can trust God in the face of hunger, in, in, a, in a battle with cancer, in elections, in government shutdowns, in wars, in the, in the face of injustice and terror and persecution and wounded relationships. We can trust God in all things. There is not a single circumstance or present problem that He is not Lord over. In the words of the hymn writer Thomas More, joy of the desolate, light of the straying, hope of the penitent, fadeless and pure. Here speaks the comforter tenderly say, earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot cure. Earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot cure. Friends, brothers and sisters, as we conclude, I want to encourage you to hear that and believe that. It's why the Lord of heaven came to earth. Why Jesus came and why he will come again. Earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot cure and will not cure. He will cure them. We trust him today because we will worship him on that final day where Christmas inaugurated becomes Christmas consummated. And we get a picture of this in Isaiah chapter 12. Read verses 1 to 6. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make his deeds known among the peoples, proclaim his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Did you notice the certainty that we will make it safely home? To heaven. Look at verse 1. You will say in that day. And then the praise of the glorified people of God follows. Our hope of persevering through trials and tribulations is not found inside of us. Our hope of persevering through trials and tribulations is not found inside of us. It is found in our God. 
Our hope of making it home to heaven is not based upon the strength of our faith, but upon the strength of our God, upon the strength of our Savior. And so we trust Him. In God's kindness, He has proven to us over and over again that He can be trusted. Through Isaiah's vision of Christmas, we learn that God can be trusted because He will keep His word. He has sent the Messiah, and He will send Him again. Our God can be trusted because He will right all wrongs, because He's in control. Our God can be trusted because He holds the future, and because He will bring us into it. Trust God. Let's pray together.